0: Well, we're starting this series on the cross, and it will take us right up to Good Friday. And indeed, for those who have um, a tradition or a discipline of Lent, then this certainly would be a time to, not simply negatively to give things up, but positively to take things up and to use this time as a challenge and reflection. And of course, the, the cross is often the focal point for... Christian disciples, as it has been done through the centuries. The cross. What would you think? What would you think? If you were sitting next to a woman who was either working with you or indeed in church wearing earrings stamped with the image of a mushroom cloud that celebrated the the dropping of the bomb in Hiroshima. What would you think? I wonder what sort of conversation you would have. Why do you wear those earrings? Or what would you think if you came into a church building, a church building that was adorned with a fresco of the massed graves at Auschwitz, where millions of people perished in the gas chambers. I think you would say that that would be a grotesque vision, hideous and utterly offensive to the point where you might actually leave the building. what we have lost when we think about the cross and me personally is that same sense of shock and revulsion and horror that's associated with the cross, the crucifixion of the first century. Interestingly, apart from the emperor's explicit sanction that no Roman citizen would ever be put to death by crucifixion because it was such a horrendous painful death it was reserved therefore in the Roman Empire for slaves barbarians and aliens as it's recorded in history And yet how strange it is that today, even in this church, crosses adorn our buildings, sometimes even secular ones. Letter headings are written. They grace our bishops. They shine from some of our lapels and they're worn around our necks and sometimes dangled as earrings. And yet... No one is ever scandalized, ever. I couldn't help but think about this when Hannah and I visited with the intensive care unit. And when I went there, I was speaking to a lovely Filipino nurse who was wearing a cross. And I thought, how good and gracious of the Lord to have a Christian nurse to be there helping and giving individual attention. The course of talking to her, I spoke to her about her faith and her church. It was a powerful symbol. I was not repulsed by it, attracted to it. Am I right or am I wrong? In what sense do we, as we think of this series on the cross, where do we we come as we think about these extreme uh, concepts? And indeed, think of the first letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church. And he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness. And he used an interesting word. He said, the message of the cross is moronic. That's an offensive word, isn't it? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, here we are. We're thinking about the cross And we need to think perhaps more deeply than our familiar concepts. A very brave, perhaps somewhat unwise, clergyman in Philadelphia once attempted to overcome the romanticism and sentimentality of the cross in his congregation. And he did something that scandalized them. What would you think if you were in his congregation? And on Good Friday, he removed the golden cross from the altar at the center of the church and in its place put a miniature replica of the electric chair. what would you do? What would you think if you came to church on Good Friday? Well, it caused a frightful row in the congregation. His respectable congregation were greatly upset. They were offended by this monstrous obscenity. The very holiest place in the sanctuary and yet a grotesque image of death. If we were to have a discussion now, would you think that was a valid thing to do? What, what is your inner response now to that? Well, I think it's valid. It may seem extreme. You see, even in America, the death sentence by electrocution is much quicker, certainly, certainly, infinitely less painful. And it is done in the privacy of a room And yet, when you think of the Lord Jesus in this public, shameful way, and when you think of the cross like that, and just come now to verse 34. And I wonder if you've seen this before. Try to clear the ground of overlaying, perhaps, of preachers and hymn writers and tradition and all those things. And look at verse 34 in the light of that awful introduction, if if you wish. Look at this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, this is the phrase. They divided his claws, casting lots. Have you ever thought that Jesus hung there naked, humiliated? And 700 years before that, he was despised rejected by men, a man of sorrows, unacquainted with grief, and as one from whom people hide their face. I don't think that's very attractive. Shock, horror. We somehow have lost the impact of that. What would you think? What are you thinking? When we think of the impact of the death of the Lord Jesus So, from the cross outside the Jerusalem wall, that itself was prophetic, bearing the sin of the people, Jesus bearing the sin of the world, he made seven statements, or actual prayers, I suspect. And we're going to look at the first now with that sort of introduction. Statements of incomparable significance for all people, for all time, until he comes again. And so the first... Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, if in your home group you'll have already looked at that and already been reflecting on this. All I want to do now then is just to say two things. The first is this, that here comes a prayer of priority. Why does Jesus begin with forgiveness? Why didn't he say, Father, love them, or Father, judge them? Why this? Father, forgive them. Forgiveness is a very powerful thing. And perhaps you can't truly love unless you forgive. And you can't really forgive unless you love. Even on Valentine's Day. Here's a a prayer of priority. Father, forgive them because forgiveness spells freedom. Freedom from ourselves, our past. Freedom from our fears. Past, present, future. Powerful concept here. Perhaps, possibly, here is the greatest liberation movement, liberation leader of all time. And yet, think of yourself now. Think of your relationships, family, marriage, friends, colleagues, and community. Just think for a moment. How many of us fall on this first hurdle that we struggle with it? Perhaps our relationship with our parents, perhaps some hurt from the past at school or whatever. We struggle with this idea of forgiveness. And we can't deal with it, so we bury it. But it surfaces in other ways under different headings. Too many of us fall on this first hurdle. And somehow our pilgrimage in life is impaired and our progress stunted. But can, we just, can I just say two things as we think about this, first of all. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It obviously includes it. Powerful emotion, of course. But it is not essentially a feeling. Forgiveness in the New Testament, and especially from our Lord, is based not on emotion, not on feeling, but on a decision, believing. It's a decision. And I suspect that some of us need to do this. This is a helpful illustration. You're going to forgive somebody and you need to get your feelings by the scruff of the neck and bring them with you. Because in a way, the feelings need to be somewhat subordinate to our decision. I know they're powerful. But forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a decision that you either make or you don't. Secondly, and this is important, how often we were brought up when our parents or whatever says, forgive and forget. Shake hands. Well, I want to tell you that forgiveness is not forgetting. You can't. It's not built into you that you choose to forget. You can't do that. Try it and see. It doesn't work like that. So I want to make the sentence, and and, and here it is, that, that forgiving is possible without forgetting. Some people say, well, if you haven't forgotten, you're not forgiven. That is not true. God, however, can do both, and He does. And it is an expression of His power and the deity. And the sovereignty of Jesus that he can forgive and choose not to remember. It's not because he's got a bad memory. As if we had never done it. And that's, that's why it's so liberating. And that's why it's so powerful. And that is why Jesus begins this by making this affirmation. And it's mighty in its implication for us in our strained relationships. But essentially what Jesus is doing here, he is, is, if you like, simply praying and practicing what he had preached. It's a terrible thing sometimes when you see the church in its manifest hypocrisy. and, And people look on and say, they're not practicing what they preach. But that was not so with Jesus. Turn back for a moment to what we call his manifesto. We're going to hear a lot about this in the next few months by uh, the politicians. What's the manifesto on which we vote or don't for them? What promises? What's their policies? Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Here is one of the first things that Jesus said. And now make the connection. Here is one of the last things that he says. Matthew chapter 5 verse 43. We call the Sermon on the Mount. As if he's saying to his disciples, if you are going to follow me, this is what I want you to be like. This is what I want you to do. Verse 43, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, and you've heard it often enough, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, is that a big deal? What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors, the marginalized sinners of society doing that? And if you greet only your brother, the ones whom you really relate to and have a buzz from, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans who don't even believe in God do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Aim for that growing maturity of love and forgiveness. And here is Jesus doing precisely that. And yet people didn't see it. We should ask this question then. Among the followers of Jesus then and now, those who profess to know and love him and confess him as Lord. Isn't it right that among us, in our interpersonal relationship, with all of our faults and failings, to to ask this question, is there any external evidence of this spirit of forgiveness and surrender? Or are we grudging? Are we actually deep down embittered? Are we unforgiving? And here's the challenge, you know. He, here is Jesus. He not only prays in the immediate for the soldiers who just happen to be on duty. Somebody's got to do it. That's how the Roman Empire survived. After some great battles, hundreds of crucifixions took place. It's the only way to subdue The slaves and keep society together. The ultimate deterrent. They are on duty. They are doing their job. He not only prays for them. And not just for the crowd. Or not just for Pilate. Who Jesus could see that Caiaphas could manipulate him. Because public opinion is more important than anything else. But he prays for us also. Also. And now we must make another connection. Not just then and there, but here and now. When we provaricate, you know, the longer I get, the more tiresome it is when you see people who are good, they go through uh, Christianity, explored and so on. They say, well, I'm not really very sure. I, you know, it's, it's almost irritating to the point. Who do you take God to be like? Why don't you repent of your sin and humble yourself and ask him to forgive you rather than to turn it into an argument? That is encompassed in the prayer of Jesus. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing and for sure they don't know what they're saying. To what extent is it a self-delusion that people stand back from Jesus and not commit their lives to him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Those of us who've heard the story of the cross over and over again, maybe we've become a bit too familiar with it. He prays for us also. That's his priority. But then secondly, it's interesting. And if you look at it again, without all the overlaying of tradition and so on, it's a prayer by proxy. It's a proxy prayer. You know, we have a system in the church, if you can't come and vote for a certain thing, you're given uh, a proxy slip, and you can vote for somebody. Now, Jesus does this. Why? And this is one of the things we discussed in our home group. I'm sure you did. Why didn't Jesus forgive them? Why does he pray like this? Father, forgive them. Why does he ask his Father? I ask you that question for this reason. Just think about it now. Up to that moment, Jesus had never asked his father to forgive anyone, as far as I know. If you've noticed, tell me. Indeed, from his birth, you will call his name Jesus. He will save his people. He will redeem them. And when John... Speaks about his coming. You see, he loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And throughout his ministry, his entire ministry, he constantly brought forgiveness. He was the vehicle for it all the time. Yet, here he is, saying to his father, Father, you forgive them. Here is Jesus who constantly brought forgiveness. Do you remember the paralyzed man brought to Jesus? And he said, Son, your, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And it's, it's so incensed the leaders. Who can give, forgive sins but God Almighty? Exactly. Who but God? And do you remember the, the woman who had a torrid time in, in relationships? Five broken marriages. When she left Jesus, she said to the people, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. And she did a lot. Is not this the Christ? Do you see it? He brought forgiveness and healing and reconciliation. Why this change? Why this change? Well, can I just ask you just for a moment, and, and, and don't switch off when you hear this word, think theologically for a moment. Think theologically. That here is Jesus, that on the cross, he laid aside his divine authority. He chose to do that. Because here he is, becoming the embodiment of sin. That's saying, I'm taking the sin upon myself, Father. Now, you take over. You, you forgive them. Because I have been made sin. It's, it's, it's a powerful Powerful prayer. So he becomes our scapegoat. And the hymn writers are right, aren't they? In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. He is the substitute. And in that substitutionary position he says, Father, forgive them as I take their sin upon myself. My sin, your sin. So forgiveness doesn't come cheap. It crushed the Son of God and cost him his life. You know, for people to be standoffish like that and think, shall I, shan't I become a Christian? It's almost offensive, isn't it? What what more do people need? Or will people look back over their life's journey and say, what a fool I've been. But the greatest mercy and the greatest blessing and I was too proud. Or I didn't know. But now I know and it's too late. Forgiveness doesn't come cheap. Wesley, Charles Wesley, whom you know wrote thousands of hymns, up to 6,000 still uh, have survived. And in his conversion hymn, he puts it, doesn't he? And can it be, can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me, me who caused his pain, me to him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be? And then he says, and it's, it's still thinking theologically, tis mystery all, the immortal dies. How can the immortal die? How can he? How can we explore this strange design? Died he for me who caused his pain. He saw it like that. Forgiveness is so costly. And we need to make that connection. Well, as we come to the conclusion, as we think about the cross and this this first saying about forgiveness, we need to make the personal connection. The cross then, the cross now. Jesus and me. Jesus and me. For example, turn to, this is our last uh, reference, turn to Acts chapter 8. See how one man makes the connection. Look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. How do we read the Old Testament? Isaiah's prophecy. Well, here is the Ethiopian He's on his way back now to his home country. He is what's called a proselyte. He's a Gentile who's embraced Judaism. He sees something of the Messiah. And he was there on the day of Pentecost. And he hears the preaching of Peter that Jesus has died and he's risen again. And he's saying to himself, I've got to come to grips with this. I'm going to read the Bible, whatever there was. So he's on his way home. Okay, that's the connection. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip Philip the evangelist go south go to the south to the road the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza so he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candesi, queen of Ethiopians the man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 53, as we shall see. Now, we'll make the connection. The Spirit told Philip, go to to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked him. He says, well, how can I? Unless somebody explain it to me. So he invited him to come up to sit with him. The eunuch was reading the passage of scripture, Isaiah fifty three, which we've made reference to, and he's reading this. He he was like a sheep led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Now, if it's himself, why? If it's someone else, who? Do you see it? Now, what would you? how would you answer? Well... Of course, I hope you would say the beginning with this passage of Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus who died and rose again and is the sin-bearer of people and he brings forgiveness and joy and peace as we trust him. You see it, making the connection. It's good news that in Christ we have a Saviour who redeems and reconciles. Have you made the connection? Really, personally, make the connection. Who is he talking about? And if it is this Savior, do you know his good news? The the, the sweetness of his forgiveness. Believe him. Trust him. And so take back to your people Whether you're an aristocrat who's going back and you work in the the highest stratas of society. You tell them the good news about Jesus. Or you're a woman of Samaria who's had five broken marriages. You tell them the good news about Jesus. Do you see the connection? Of course it is. Well, let's come to a a close. What was God's answer? Father? forgive them for they know not what they were they were doing well of course we do know for he rose in power and glory and the father answers that prayer on the basis of his son who takes our sin away jesus is the sin bearer is he my sin bearer i can be forgiven And I can know his grace, not his judgment. I can know his mercy and his peace and an assurance of heaven. Just think, the Lord Jesus says and echo that prayer. Father, forgive them. Is it true of you, you don't know what you're doing? Or you do know? Is ignorance an excuse? I was pulled in by the police recently. I wasn't wearing my safety belt. Is it an excuse? It's not an excuse. So come to him. Without delay. If you like, without pretending, without prevaricating anymore. Come to him and ask him to forgive you, to be your saviour and Lord and live out your life into this new liberation of grace